There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police the arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cop of murder. Today's story, quite literally, has almost everything a fan of true crime could ask for. There is a serial killer with a troubled beginning, a survivor who brings down his decades of crime, a hero detective who spends years of his career trying to solve the seemingly unsolvable case, and a conspiracy that he got the whole thing wrong. On April 1st, 1980, a dangerous man was arrested for what police initially believed was only two crimes. But upon getting him into the interrogation room, found out that that number was much, much higher. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Gerald Eugene Stano, born Paul Zenninger in Zenninger on September 12, 1951 in Schenectady, New York, had a biological mother who, after neglecting him for the first six months of his life, attempted to put him up for adoption only to be told by the county doctors that he was unadoptable. According to their records, Paul was functioning at a, quote, animalistic level and had been eating his own feces to survive his mother's negligence. Eventually, a nurse named Norma Stano adopted the young boy, gave him the name Gerald, and treated him with love and affection that she hoped would heal the damage already done. Despite her best efforts, Gerald, who wet the bed until he was 10 years old, continued to have behavioral problems all throughout his life. In school, he earned C's and D's in every subject except music, in which he excelled, lied compulsively, and was once caught stealing money from his father so he could pay for the other members of the track team to finish behind him so he wouldn't be a failure. At the age of 14 or 15, Gerald was arrested for the first time for a false alarm and a bit later found himself in handcuffs for throwing rocks off a highway bridge and attempting to smash the passing vehicles and, according to some sources, impregnated a mentally disabled girl whose abortion his parents paid for. Over the years, in an effort to deal with his behavioral problems, Gerald was sent to Florida to live with his grandparents and to a military school, neither of which seemed to change his crash course with trouble. After graduating high school at the age of 21, Gerald enrolled in a computer school and, upon completion, went to work at a local hospital where he would soon be fired for stealing from co-workers. Not sure where to go next, Gerald moved in with his parents in Ormond Beach, Florida, where his inability to hold down a job continued to plague him. When he was 23 years old, Gerald met a woman and the pair got engaged. A few months before their wedding, he was caught and arrested for check fraud and placed in jail. His fiancé's parents wrote the judge a letter asking for his early release so the wedding could go off as planned. He agreed, and the marriage lasted just 13 months. It was during those 13 months that Gerald's wife ignored his late-night drives and the fact that, on some evenings, he came home with what appeared to be blood on his clothing. In March of 1980, a woman, battered and bloodied, ran into the Daytona Beach Motel and tearfully demanded emergency services. The hotel clerk called her an ambulance and soon the Daytona Beach police showed up to interview her. According to Donna Marie Hensley, who had been attacked with a blade, bottle opener, a pair of scissors, and muriatic acid, she had been abducted by a man she had seen on a number of occasions trolling the area frequented by sex workers. 
In fact, according to what she told officers, a number of those women had very similar horror stories to tell about this man, whom she was able to describe in very vivid detail. She did such an incredible job describing this man, where he worked, and what car he drove, the police arrested Gerald Stano on April 1st, 1980, and brought him in for questioning. Sitting across the table from the officer, Detective Sergeant Paul B. Crow began laying out photographs of a 20-year-old woman named Mary Carol Mayer, who had been abducted near the Daytona Beach Boardwalk two months earlier. A girl who had just graduated high school, was at community college, and was about to enroll at Clemson University on a swimming scholarship. When he asked if Gerald knew the woman in the photos, he confirmed and said, quote, I knew her, Mary Carroll, using her name in the past tense. He then went on to describe in detail what Mary had been wearing the day he killed her, and described the wounds he inflicted that matched her autopsy reports. For the next six years, Paul Crow met with Gerald Stano, who, knowing he faced life imprisonment, was reluctant to give too many details about his crimes. Before long, though, Gerald started to see Paul as more friend than foe and began opening up while Paul worked to find out as much about the case as he possibly could. Knowing that his near miss with Donna Hensley, murder of Mary Carroll, were probably not the beginning of his criminal career. So he started looking at any cases involving a missing girl. And when he found one that seemed to match the M.O., he checked to see if Gerald was in the vicinity at the time of the abduction or the murder. When he felt as though he collected enough information, he went to Gerald to confirm and fill in the blanks. Another person he grew quite close to over the years was Kathy Kelly, a reporter and editor at the News Journal who would later co-write a book about Gerald's crimes. After years of interviewing Gerald and compiling information about his chats with Paul Crow, Kathy came to the conclusion that Gerald, fancying himself as, quote, quite the stud, used his confidence to disarm women and make them feel comfortable in his presence. Like 17-year-old Barbara Bauer, whom he encountered in September of 1973 when she was left stranded on the side of the road with a broken-down car. Gerald pulled up to the cheerleader and offered her help, as he had the same model car she did. After jumping her car, the charming and generous man offered to drive her car a short distance to fully charge the battery and bring it back to her, even promising to reimburse her for the gas he used. Barbara was never seen again, but seven months later, a couple in Gainesville discovered a human skull in the woods near their home, Barbara's skull. There was also Susan Bickrest, an aspiring cosmetologist who had just recently moved to Daytona Beach and worked at a bar that Gerald liked to frequent. He followed her home after she got off of work and forced her into his car. Her body was found floating in Spruce Creek by two fishermen. Her cause of death was drowning. According to Kathy, quote, if they complained about the kind of music he had on the radio or disagreed with him about anything, this red rage would come over him and he would just lash out at them. Gerald's victims, of which there are many, ranged between the ages of 12 and 34 years old and from locations like Florida, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey. Some were shot, stabbed, strangled, or drowned. Most were white and all were women who he felt he could easily overpower. When asking how he found his victims, Gerald candidly replied, I would find a girl walking. 
Officially, Gerald admitted to committing his first murder in the late 1960s when he was 18 years old. Several girls over the years have gone missing from areas where Gerald was residing at the time. But because these cases were all being looked into decades later, the physical evidence was not sufficient enough to charge him with all of the cases he confessed to. In total, he claimed he killed 41 young girls and women, and police believe that number is, at the minimum, 22. He said that, after committing his first murder in New Jersey, he killed six in Pennsylvania and 30 or more in Florida. Some were sex workers, others were hitchhikers, and some were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Victims like Tony Van Haddix, whose body was found in Volusia County in April of 1980. Nancy Hurd, whose body was found by the power lines in Tomoka State Park. Linda Hamilton, who was reported missing from the boardwalk in New Smyrna. Ramona Neal, whose body was found in the Tomoka State Park. Susan Hamilton, who was found on the beach. A. Jane Doe, who was supposedly left along the highway. Mary Kathleen Muldoon and Sandra DeBose. Just a few of many, many names associated with this dangerous man. Had it not been for Donna Marie Hensley, Gerald may have gone on for another few decades before ever being caught. Or worse, never caught at all. After years of confessions and years of racking up charge after charge, on September 2nd, 1981, Gerald Stano pleaded guilty to three of the charges against him, was given three consecutive life terms in accordance with his plea, on March 7, 1983, he was sentenced to three more terms after pleading guilty to three other charges. And on June 13, 1983, he received his first death sentence for the murders of Kathleen Muldoon and Susan Bickrest. On September 30, 1983, his trial in Titusville, Florida, ended up in a deadlock. But three months later, a second jury sentenced him to death for the murder of 17-year-old Kathy Lee Scharf. And on January 16, 1984, a Seminole County judge sentenced Gerald to his seventh life sentence for the murder of an unidentified woman found in Alamonte Springs. Though prosecuted for a total of 33 murders, found guilty of nine and confessing to 41, Gerald has been linked to the murders of 88 different women. He was sent to the electric chair on March 23, 1998. In his final moments, Gerald made a statement that would add controversy to his already complicated criminal history. He stated, I am innocent. I am frightened. I was threatened and I was held month after month without any real legal representation. I confessed to crimes I did not commit. According to some, Gerald Stano was a serial confessor and many blame the work of Detective Sergeant Paul B. Crow for the lengthy victim list and outstanding number of convictions. Amongst those who believe as such is Detective James Gadbury, Gerald Stano's arresting officer, who challenged the decision to accept his first confession as valid and in 1986 signed a legal affidavit claiming that Paul Crow was responsible for, quote, spoon-feeding Gerald the details of his crimes in an effort to close a number of unsolved homicides. Another issue many have is that, technically, Gerald Stano was only brought to trial for the murder of Kathy Lee Scharf, despite the fact that he confessed to 41 different murders. All of his other convictions were the direct result of his own guilty plea. This is because the sheer lack of physical evidence made it virtually impossible for jurisdictions to prosecute. 
And even in Kathy's case, after a hung jury, the second convicted him after hearing the testimony of a jailhouse informant who was later discredited when another man against whom he had testified was released using DNA after serving 22 years for a rape he did not commit. In a secretly recorded interview, Clarence Zack, the informant, admitted in 1997 to lying on the stand in Gerald's case and that his statements had been fabricated with the assistance of two county prosecutors who offered him incentives in exchange for his testimony. In 2007, an FBI lab report surfaced and showed that Gerald Stano could not have been the source of the still unidentified Caucasian pubic hair removed from Kathy's body, a report that was never presented as evidence by Gerald's public defender. The hairs were destroyed shortly after Gerald's execution. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to A Terrible Thing Happened on April 2nd. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.